Section 29 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Section 29. Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents, Part 2 These singular advantages inspired His Majesty only with a more ardent desire to preserve unimpaired the spirit of that national freedom to which he owed a situation so full of glory. But to others it suggested sentiments of a very different nature. They thought they now beheld an opportunity by a certain sort of statesman never long undiscovered or unemployed, of drawing to themselves, by the aggrandizement of a court faction, a degree of power which they could never hope to derive from natural influence or from honourable service, and which it was impossible they could hold with the least security, whilst the system of administration rested upon its former bottom. In order to facilitate the execution of their design, it was necessary to make many alterations in political arrangement, and a signal change in the opinions, habits, and connections of the greatest part of those who at that time acted in public. In the first place they proceeded gradually, but not slowly, to destroy everything of strength which did not derive its principal nourishment from the immediate pleasure of the court. The greatest weight of popular opinion and party connection were then with the Duke of Newcastle and Mr Pitt. Neither of these held their importance by the new tenure of the court. They were not therefore thought to be so proper as others for the services which were required by that tenure. It happened very favourably for the new system that under a forced coalition there rankled an incurable alienation and disgust between the parties which composed the administration. Mr Pitt was first attacked. Not satisfied with removing him from power, they endeavoured by various artifices to ruin his character. The other party seemed rather pleased to get rid of so oppressive a support, not perceiving that their own fall was prepared by his and involved in it. Many other reasons were prevented them from daring to look their true situation in the face. To the great Whig families it was extremely disagreeable and seemed almost unnatural to oppose the administration of a prince of the House of Brunswick. Day after day they hesitated and doubted and lingered, expecting that other councils would take place and were slow to be persuaded. That all which had been done by the cabal was the effect not of humour but of system. It was more strongly and evidently the interest of the new court faction to get rid of the great Whig connections than to destroy Mr Pitt. The power of that gentleman was vast indeed and merited, but it was in a great degree personal and therefore transient. Theirs was rooted in the country. For, with a good deal less of popularity, they possessed a far more natural and fixed influence. Long possession of government, vast property, 
obligations of favours given and received, connection of office, ties of blood, of alliance, of friendship, things at that time supposed of some force, the name of Whig, dear to the majority of the people, the zeal early begun and steadily continued to the royal family. All these together formed a body of power in the nation, which was criminal and devoted. The great ruling principle of the cabal, and that which animated and harmonised all their proceedings, how various soever they may have been, was to signify to the world that the court would proceed upon its own proper forces only, and that the pretence of bringing any other into its service was an affront to it, and not a support. Therefore, when the chiefs were removed, in order to go to the root, the whole party was put under a prescription, so general and severe, as to take their hard-earned bread from the lowest officers, in a manner which had never been known before, even in general revolutions. But it was thought necessary, effectually, to destroy all dependencies, but one, and to show an example of the firmness and rigour with which the new system was to be supported. Thus for the time were pulled down in the persons of the Whig leaders and of Mr Pitt, in spite of the services of the one at the accession of the royal family and the recent services of the other in the war, the two only securities for the importance of the people, power arising from popularity and power arising from connection. Here and there, indeed, a few individuals were left standing, who gave security for their total estrangement from the odious principles of party connection and personal attachment. And it must be confessed that most of them have religiously kept their faith. Such a change could not, however, be made without a mighty shock to government. To reconcile the minds of the people to all these movements, principles correspondent to them, had been preached up with great zeal. Everyone must remember that the cabal set out with the most astonishing prudery, both moral and political. Those who in a few months after soused overhead and ears into the deepest and dirtiest pits of corruption, cried out violently against the indirect practices in the electing and managing of parliaments, which had formerly prevailed. This marvellous abhorrence which the court had suddenly taken to all influence, was not only circulated in conversation through the kingdom, but pompously announced to the public, with many other extraordinary things, in a pamphlet, which had all the appearance of a manifesto preparatory to some considerable enterprise. Throughout it was a satire, though in terms managed and decent enough, on the politics of the former reign, it was indeed written with no small art and address. In this piece appeared the first dawning of the new system. There first appeared the idea, then only in speculation, of separating the court from the administration, of carrying everything from national connection to personal regards, and of forming a regular party for that purpose, under the name of King's Men. To recommend this system to the people, a perspective view of the court, gorgeously painted and finely illuminated from within, was exhibited to the gaping multitude. Party was to be totally done away, with all its evil works. 
corruption was to be cast down from court as Ate was from heaven power was thenceforward to be the chosen residence of public spirit and no one was to be supposed under any sinister influence except those who had the misfortune to be in disgrace at court which was to stand in lieu of all vices and all corruptions a scheme of perfection to be realised in a monarchy far beyond the visionary republic of plato the whole scenery was exactly disposed to captivate those good souls whose credulous morality is so invaluable a treasure to crafty politicians indeed there was wherewithal to charm everybody except those few who are not much pleased with professions of supernatural virtue who know of what stuff such professions are made for what purposes they are designed and in what they are sure constantly to end many innocent gentlemen who had been talking prose all their lives without knowing anything of the matter began at last to open their eyes upon their own merits and to attribute their not having been lords of the treasury and lords of trade many years before merely to the prevalence of party and to the ministerial power which had frustrated the good intentions of the court in favour of their abilities now was the time to unlock the sealed fountain of royal bounty which had been infamously monopolised and huckstered and to let it flow at large upon the whole people the time was come to restore royalty to its original splendour maitre le roi or de page became a sort of watchword and it was constantly in the mouths of all the runners of the court that nothing could preserve the balance of the constitution from being overturned by the rabble or by a faction of the nobility but to free the sovereign effectually from that ministerial tyranny under which the royal dignity had been oppressed in the person of his majesty's grandfather these were some of the many artifices used to reconcile the people to the great change which was made in the persons who composed the ministry and the still greater which was made and avowed in its constitution as to individuals or the methods were employed with them in order so thoroughly to disunite every party and even every family that no concert order or effect might appear in any future opposition and in this manner an administration without connection with the people or with one another was first put in possession of government what good consequences followed from it we have all seen whether with regard to virtue public or private to the ease and happiness of the sovereign or to the real strength of government but as so much stress was then laid on the necessity of this new project it will not be amiss to take a view of the effects of this royal servitude and vile durance which was so deplored in the reign of the late monarch and was so carefully to be avoided in the reign of his successor the effects were these in times full of doubt and danger to his person and family george the second maintained the dignity of his crown connected with the liberty of his people not only unimpaired but improved for the space of thirty-three years he overcame a dangerous rebellion abetted by foreign force and raging in the heart of his kingdoms 
and thereby destroyed the seeds of all future rebellion that could arise upon the same principle. He carried the glory, the power, the commerce of England to a height unknown even to this renowned nation in the times of its greatest prosperity, and he left his succession resting on the true and only true foundations of all national and all regal greatness. Affection at home, reputation abroad, trust in allies, terror in rival nations. The most ardent lover of his country cannot wish for Great Britain a happier fate than to continue as she was then left. A people, emulous as we are in affection to our present sovereign, know not how to form a prayer to heaven for a greater blessing upon his virtues or a higher state of felicity and glory than that he should live and should reign and when providence ordains it should die exactly like his illustrious predecessor a great prince may be obliged though such a thing cannot happen very often to sacrifice his private inclination to his public interest a wise prince will not think that such a restraint implies a condition of civility and truly if such was the condition of the last reign and the effects were also such as we have described we ought no less for the sake of the sovereign whom we love than for our own to hear arguments convincing indeed before we depart from the maxims of that reign or fly in the face of this great body of strong and recent experience. One of the principal topics, which was then, and has been since, much employed by that political school, is an affected terror of the growth of an aristocratic power, prejudicial to the rights of the crown, and the balance of the constitution. Any new powers exercised in the House of Lords, or in the House of Commons, or by the crown, ought certainly to excite the vigilant and anxious jealousy of a free people. Even a new and unprecedented course of action in the whole legislature, without great and evident reason, may be a subject of just uneasiness. I will not affirm that there may not have lately appeared in the House of Lords a disposition to some attempt derogatory to the legal rights of the subject. If any such have really appeared, they have arisen, not from a power properly aristocratic, but from the same influence which is charged with having excited attempts of a similar nature in the House of Commons. Which house, if it should have been betrayed into an unfortunate quarrel with its constituents and involved in a charge of the very same nature, could have neither power nor inclination to repel such attempts in others. Those attempts in the House of Lords can no more be called aristocratic proceedings than the proceedings with regard to the county of Middlesex in the House of Commons can with any sense be called democratical. It is true that the peers have a great influence in the kingdom and in every part of the public concerns. While they are men of property, it is impossible to prevent it, except by such means as must prevent all property from its natural operation an event not easily to be compassed, while property is power, nor by any means to be wished, while the least notion exists of the method by which the spirit of liberty acts, and of the means by which it is preserved. 
if any particular peers, by their uniform, upright, constitutional conduct, by their public and their private virtues, have acquired an influence in the country, the people on whose favour that influence depends, and from whom it arose, will never be duped into an opinion that such greatness in a peer is the despotism of an aristocracy, when they know and feel it to be the effect and pledge of their own importance. I am no friend to aristocracy, in the sense at least in which that word is usually understood. If it were not a bad habit to moot cases on the supposed ruin of the constitution, I should be free to declare that if it must perish, I would rather by far see it resolved into any other form than lost in that austere and insolent domination. But whatever my dislikes may be, my fears are not upon that quarter. The question on the influence of a court and of a peerage is not which of the two dangers is the more eligible, but which is the more imminent. He is but a poor observer who has not seen that the generality of peers far from supporting themselves in a state of independent greatness, are but too apt to fall into an oblivion of their proper dignity, and to run headlong into an abject servitude. Would to God it were true that the fault of our peers were too much spirit. It is worthy of some observation that these gentlemen, so jealous of aristocracy, make no complaints of the power of those peers, neither few nor inconsiderable, who are always in the train of a court, and whose whole weight must be considered as a portion of the settled influence of the crown. This is all safe and right, but if some peers, I am very sorry they are not as many as they ought to be, set themselves in the great concern of peers and commons against a backstairs influence and clandestine government, then the alarm begins then the constitution is in danger of being forced into an aristocracy. I rest a little longer on this court topic because it was much insisted upon at the time of the great change and has been since frequently revived by many of the agents of that party. For, whilst they are terrifying the great and opulent with the horrors of mob government, they are by other managers attempting though hitherto with little success, to alarm the people with a phantom of tyranny in the nobles. All this is done upon their favourite principle of disunion, of sowing jealousies amongst the different orders of the state, and of disjointing the natural strength of the kingdom, that it may be rendered incapable of resisting the sinister designs of wicked men who have engrossed the royal power. Thus much of the topics chosen by the courtiers to recommend their system, it will be necessary to open a little more at large the nature of that party which was formed for its support. Without this, the whole would have been no better than a visionary amusement, like the scheme of Harrington's political club, and not a business in which the nation had a real concern. As a powerful party, and a party constructed on a new principle, it is a very inviting object of curiosity. It must be remembered that since the revolution until the period we are speaking of, the influence of the crown 
had been always employed in supporting the ministers of state and in carrying on the public business according to their opinions but the party now in question is formed upon a very different idea it is to intercept the favour protection and confidence of the crown in the passage to its ministers it is to come between them and their importance in parliament it is to separate them from all their natural and acquired dependencies it is intended as the control not the support of administration the machinery of this system is perplexed in its movements and false in its principle it is formed on a supposition that the king is something external to his government and that he may be honoured and aggrandised even by its debility and disgrace the plan proceeds expressly on the idea of enfeebling the regular executory power it proceeds on the idea of weakening the state in order to strengthen the court the scheme depending entirely on distrust on disconnection on mutability by principle on systematic weakness in every particular member it is impossible that the total result should be substantial strength of any kind as a foundation of their scheme the cabal have established a sort of rota in the court all sorts of parties by this means have been brought into administration from whence few have had the good fortune to escape without disgrace none at all without considerable losses in the beginning of each arrangement no professions of confidence and support are wanting to induce the leading men to engage but while the ministers of the day appear in all the pomp and pride of power while they have all their canvas spread out to the wind and every sail filled with the fair and prosperous gale of royal favour in a short time they find they know not how a current which sets directly against them which prevents all progress and even drives them backwards they grow ashamed and mortified in a situation which by its vicinity to power only serves to remind them the more strongly of their insignificance they are obliged either to execute the orders of their inferiors or to see themselves opposed by the natural instruments of their office with the loss of their dignity they lose their temper in their turn they grow troublesome to that cabal which whether it supports or opposes equally disgraces and equally betrays them it is soon found necessary to get rid of the heads of administration but it is of the heads only as there always are many rotten members belonging to the best connections it is not hard to persuade several to continue in office without their leaders by this means the party goes out much thinner than it came in and is only reduced in strength by its temporary possession of power besides if by accident or in course of changes that power should be recovered the junto have thrown up a retrenchment of these carcasses which may serve to cover themselves in a day of danger they conclude not unwisely that such rotten members will become the first objects of disgust and resentment to their ancient connections they contrive to form in the outward administration two parties at the least which whilst they are tearing one another to pieces 
are both competitors for the favour and protection of the cabal, and by their emulation contribute to throw everything more and more into the hands of the interior managers. A minister of state will sometimes keep himself totally estranged from all his colleagues, will differ from them in their councils, will privately traverse and publicly oppose their measures. He will, however, continue in his employment. Instead of suffering any mark of displeasure, he will be distinguished by an unbounded profusion of court rewards and caresses, because he does what is expected and all that is expected from men in office. He helps to keep some form of administration in being and keeps it at the same time as weak and divided as possible. However, we must take care not to be mistaken or to imagine that such persons have any weight in their opposition. When, by them, administration is convinced of its insignificancy, they are soon to be convinced of their own. They never are suffered to succeed in their opposition. They and the world are to be satisfied that neither office nor authority, nor property, nor ability, eloquence, counsel, skill or union are of the least importance, but that the mere influence of the court, naked of all support and destitute of all management, is abundantly sufficient for all its own purposes. When any adverse connection is to be destroyed, the cabal seldom appear in the work themselves. They find out some person of whom the party entertains a high opinion. Such a person they endeavour to delude with various pretences. They teach him first to distrust and then to quarrel with his friends, among whom, by the same arts, they excite a similar diffidence of him, so that in this mutual fear and distrust he may suffer himself to be employed as the instrument in the change which is brought about. Afterwards they are sure to destroy him in his turn, by setting up in his place some person in whom he had himself reposed the greatest confidence, and who serves to carry off a considerable part of his adherents. When such a person has broken this manner with his connections, he is soon compelled to commit some flagrant act of iniquitous personal hostility against some of them, such as an attempt to strip a particular friend of his family estate, by which the cabal hoped to render the parties utterly irreconcilable. In truth, they have so contrived matters that people have a greater hatred to the subordinate instruments than to the principal movers, as in destroying their enemies, they make use of instruments not immediately belonging to their core. So in advancing their own friends, they pursue exactly the same method, to promote any of them to considerable rank or emolument, they commonly take care that the recommendation shall pass through the hands of the ostensible ministry. Such a recommendation might, however, appear to the world as some proof of the credit of ministers and some means of increasing their strength. To prevent this, the persons so advanced are directed in all companies industriously to declare that they are under no obligations whatsoever to administration that they have received their office from another quarter, that they are totally free and independent.
When the faction has any job of lucre to obtain or of vengeance to perpetrate, their way is to select for the execution those very persons to whose habits, friendships, principles and declarations such proceedings are publicly known to be the most adverse, at once to render the instruments the more odious and therefore the more dependent, and to prevent the people from ever reposing a confidence in any appearance of private friendship or public principle. If the administration seem now and then from remissness, or from fear of making themselves disagreeable, to suffer any popular excesses to go unpunished, the cabal immediately sets up some creature of theirs to raise a clamour against the ministers, as having shamefully betrayed the dignity of government. Then they compel the ministry to become active in conferring rewards and honours on the persons who have been the instruments of their disgrace, and, after having first vilified them with the higher orders for suffering the laws to sleep over the licentiousness of the populace, they drive them, in order to make amends for their former inactivity, to some act of atrocious violence, which renders them completely abhorred by the people. They who remember the riots which attended the Middlesex election, the opening of the present Parliament, and the transactions relative to St George's Fields, will not be at a loss for an application of these remarks, that this body may be enabled to encompass all the ends of its institution. Its members are scarcely ever to aim at the high and responsible offices of the state. They are distributed with art and judgment through all the secondary but efficient departments of office and through the households of all the branches of the royal family, so as on one hand to occupy all the avenues to the throne and on the other to forward or frustrate the execution of any measure according to their own interests. For with the credit and support which they are known to have, though for the greater part in places which are only a genteel excuse for salary, they possess all the influence of the highest posts, and they dictate publicly in almost everything, even with a parade of superiority. Whenever they dissent, as it often happens, from their nominal leaders, the trained part of the Senate, instinctively in the secret, is sure to follow them, provided the leaders, sensible of their situation, do not of themselves recede in time from their most declared opinions. This latter is generally the case. It will not be conceivable to anyone who has not seen it. What pleasure is taken by the cabal in rendering these heads of office thoroughly contemptible and ridiculous? And when they are become so, they have then the best chance for being well supported. The members of the court faction are fully indemnified for not holding places on the slippery heights of the kingdom, not only by the lead in all affairs, but also by the perfect security in which they enjoy less conspicuous but very advantageous situations. Their places are in express legal tenure, or in effect, all of them for life, whilst the first and most respectable persons in the kingdom are tossed about like tennis balls, the sport of a blind and insolent caprice. No minister dares even to cast 
an oblique glance at the lowest of their body. If an attempt be made upon one of this corps, immediately he flies to sanctuary and pretends to the most inviolable of all promises. No conveniency of public arrangement is available to remove any one of them from the specific situation he holds, and the slightest attempt upon one of them by the most powerful minister is a certain preliminary to his own destruction. Conscious of their independence, they bear themselves with a lofty air to the exterior ministers. Like Janissaries, they derive a kind of freedom from the very condition of their servitude. They may act just as they please, provided they are true to the great ruling principle of their institution. It is, therefore, not at all wonderful that people should be so desirous of adding themselves to that body in which they may possess and reconcile satisfactions the most alluring and seemingly the most contradictory, enjoying at once all the spirited pleasure of independence and all the gross lucre and fat emoluments of servitude. Here is a sketch, though a slight one, of the constitution, laws and policy of this new court corporation. The name by which they choose to distinguish themselves is that of King's Men or the King's Friends, by an invidious exclusion of the rest of His Majesty's most loyal and affectionate subjects. The whole system, comprehending the exterior and interior administrations, is commonly called, in the technical language of the court, double cabinet in French or English, as you choose to pronounce it. Whether all this be a vision of a distracted brain, or the invention of a malicious heart, or a real faction in the country, must be judged by the appearances which things have worn for eight years past. Thus far I am certain that there is not a single public man, in or out of office, who has not, at some time or other, borne testimony to the truth of what I have now related. In particular, no persons have been more strong in their assertions and louder and more indecent in their complaints than those who compose all the exterior part of the present administration, in whose time that faction has arrived at such a height of power and of boldness in the use of it as may, in the end, perhaps bring about its total destruction. It is true that about four years ago, during the administration of the Marquis of Rockingham, an attempt was made to carry on government without their concurrence. However, this was only a transient cloud. They were hid but for a moment, and their constellation blazed out with greater brightness and a far more vigorous influence, some time after it was blown over. An attempt was at that time made but without any idea of prescription, to break their core, to discountenance their doctrines, to revive connections of a different kind, to restore the principles and policy of the Whigs, to reanimate the cause of liberty by ministerial countenance. And then for the first time were men seen attached in office to every principle they had maintained in opposition. No one will doubt that such men were abhorred and violently opposed by the court faction, and that such a system could have but a short duration. It may appear somewhat affected, 
that in so much discourse upon this extraordinary party, I should say so little of the Earl of Bute, who is the supposed head of it. But this was neither owing to affectation nor inadvertence. I have carefully avoided the introduction of personal reflections of any kind. Much the greater part of the topics which have been used to blacken this nobleman are either unjust or frivolous. At best they have a tendency to give the resentment of this bitter calamity a wrong direction and to turn a public grievance into a mean, personal or dangerous national quarrel. Where there is a regular scheme of operations carried on, it is the system and not any individual person who acts in it that is truly dangerous. This system has not arisen solely from the ambition of Lord Bute, but from the circumstances which favoured it, and from an indifference to the constitution, which had been for some time growing among our gentry. We should have been tried with it, if the Earl of Bute had never existed, and it will want neither a contriving head nor active members when the Earl of Bute exists no longer. It is not, therefore, to rail at Lord Bute, but firmly to embody against this court party and its practices, which can afford us any prospect of relief in our present condition. Another motive induces me to put the personal consideration of Lord Bute wholly out of the question. He communicates very little in a direct manner with the greater part of our men of business. This has never been his custom. It is enough for him that he surrounds them with his creatures. Several imagine, therefore, that they have a very good excuse for doing all the work of this faction when they have no personal connection with Lord Bute. But whoever becomes a party to an administration composed of insulated individuals, without faith plighted, tie or common principle, an administration constitutionally impotent, because supported by no party in the nation, he who contributes to destroy the connections of men and their trust in one another, or in any sort to throw the dependence of public councils upon private will and favour, possibly may have nothing to do with the Earl of Bute. It matters little whether he be the friend or the enemy of that particular person, but let him be who or what he will. He abets a faction that is driving hard to the ruin of his country. He is sapping the foundation of its liberty, disturbing the sources of its domestic tranquillity, weakening its government over its dependencies, degrading it from all its importance in the system of Europe. It is this unnatural infusion of a system of favouritism into a government which in a great part of its constitution is popular that has raised the present ferment in the nation. The people, without entering deeply into its principles, could plainly perceive its effects in much violence, in a great spirit of innovation and a general disorder in all the functions of government. I keep my eye solely on this system. If I speak of those measures which have arisen from it, it will be so far only as they illustrate the general scheme. This is the fountain of all those bitter waters of which, through a hundred different conduits, 
we have drunk until we are ready to burst. The discretionary power of the crown in the formation of ministry, abused by bad or weak men, has given rise to a system which, without directly violating the letter of any law, operates against the spirit of the whole constitution. End of section 29